God's word. I want to remind you that our Chinese church is meeting right now downstairs and it is their 10th anniversary today. And they're having special 10th anniversary celebrations and so. <clears throat> Pastor Wayne is preaching there this morning because he's had a lot of uh, input into shaping the leaders there and watching over that ministry along with Hel- Helen and Ernie Atkinson on the elders board. So will you join me as we pray for them along with us as well. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have of being able to use this facility in so many different ways. And we thank you, Father, for the day that you burdened Doris and Sam Lee to reach out to their own people in this area and for all that has happened since that time. And as as we receive the word of God here and hear you answer our prayers to be led and guided in a life of increasing faithfulness and holiness, I pray, Father, that uh, they also will sense your pleasure as they look back I pray, Father, that they will see your hand, of, uh, your hand upon them and that will give them hope and anticipation for the future. Anoint Pastor Wayne as he ministers to them, Father. Thank you. Thank you that you are everywhere, Father. <laughs> uh, we, cannot, we can only be in one place, but you are everywhere simultaneously blessing any gathering of your people that are gathered together to seek your face. And now as we come into your presence, O oh God, I pray that uh, in all that has happened before, the songs we've sung, the words we've heard, the babies we've dedicated in symbolic act of worship, that all of those things that are necessary and helpful for us to learn from you now, we pray that they will remain in our minds. And all those things that have gone before that might distract us, I pray that you will gently set them aside as we take every thought captive and make it obedient to you and ask you, Lord, by your Spirit to open your word that we might have understanding. In Jesus' name. GlaxoSmithKline is a well-known international uh, medical laboratory and uh, drug company. Um, recently, I was uh, watching a commercial, and the, one of the research scientists who works for that company was talking about uh, how she was enjoying seeing her five-year-old daughter grow up, and uh, she was having all, all kinds of success in the, in the area of swimming. Then she talked about the grief that was in her life because her, her mother, aged mother, was... Uh, suffering from Alzheimer's and therefore her biggest pain was that my mother could not enjoy my daughter and what she was doing. She was saying all of this as an explanation as to why she had chosen to give the rest of her life to discover a cure for Alzheimer's. And then she said this one-liner, which is why I remember this commercial. She said, I don't want to solve all of life's mysteries, just this one. I was kind of gripped by that, gripped by that mentality. And the more I thought about it, I thought, you know what? Many of us, maybe most of us, don't have the kind of jobs that have that kind of sweeping, broad implications like finding a cure for Alzheimer's or cancer. But if we are Christians, if we are Christians, it struck me that God has fashioned and shaped each one of us to play a very unique role in building his kingdom, the church. And so to a greater or a lesser degree, it is God's intention and desire that all of us be able to make a statement like that No, I'm not solving all of life's problems. But I am doing these one or two things well. That's what I've given my life to. So that's what we want to talk about today as we are continuing this series of five messages on life that is marked by purpose. Two weeks ago, we looked at God's purposes for us in worship, that we have been planned for His pleasure. Then last week, we looked at God's purpose in discipleship, that we have been created to become like Christ. And specifically, we looked at becoming like Christ in His humility. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5, that was our, uh, the verses we looked at, said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So negatively that humility manifests itself in not clutching and grasping and exploiting and promoting himself. But positively that humility expressed itself in service, which is the purpose we want to focus on today, that each one of us have been shaped for service. And as I thought about this message, uh, and I've been looking at these for several months right now, I asked myself of all the things that I could talk on this subject, and many of you, as you've been reading Warren's book and in your small groups, will look at this dimension of service from many aspects. But I asked myself, what, what are some things in this context of worship that God might have me share with you? And there were three things that began to take shape over a period of time that I would like to set before you today. Now I want to begin, begin by talking about something that's not ever put in those many words, but can be picked up. And this is a sneaking suspicion that enters your mind, that whenever pastors and leaders begin to teach and preach on the subject of service, they're really trying to get you to come on board with them so their agendas can somehow be accomplished. I, I never hear people say that to me, but it's certainly possible. I want to say, for right at the outset, I want to say to you, with all of my heart, while that is possible, certain pastors and church leaders to do exactly that, now, that's not what the sermon is all about. Really, God's purpose, like everything else in calling you to serve Him, is for your joy and my joy. Now, joy is something that all of us can do a lot more with in our lives. And in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson has this very insightful observation. He says, a common but futile strategy of achieving joy is trying to eliminate things that hurt. Get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. Get rid of insecurity by eliminating the risks. Get rid of disappointments by depersonalizing your relationships. And then try to lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of vacations and entertainment. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. Look at that last sentence again. Enjoyment is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. Now, you might say, well, that's very eloquent, but do you really expect me to believe that service results in joy? Well, you judge for yourself. Uh, Sham and I have some very good friends of ours in the same life stage as we are. They live in a, in a city in the States, and over the last several years, we've got to know them quite well. In the early years of their life, they basically pursued the ultimate American dream. Accumulate money, possessions, and they were very successful in, in business and in life as far as possessions are concerned. But it didn't bring any kind of joy and peace. It brought a lot of grief along with it, fractured relationships and whatnot. Eventually, they came to a point in their lives where they became followers of Jesus Christ. And as Christ became more and more of a dominating influence in their life, they downsized, moved to a different location. And in our recent visits, they've been sharing with us how God has led them both into a very, very exciting ministry. Uh, both of them work with uh, high-risk Afro-American teenagers in the inner city of the city that they live in. He works with the men and she works with the women. And they were telling us how one evening, and they drove us to the place, and let me tell you, it's not exactly the most attractive parts of the city. Not even the safest by a long shot. And they said one night when we came out of this building after we'd finished working, she said, we were both filled with such a tremendous sense of joy within our hearts. And she said, actually, they, you know, and before in their earlier heydays of acquisition, they had a huge house in Florida as well. And they got rid of all of that now. But they go there once in a while for vacation. And she said, we went once to Florida for a vacation. She said, three days into that vacation, we looked at each other and said, what are we doing here? And they jumped in the car, went all the way back. They said, we'd much rather be there than here. Now, I have to be honest, I haven't quite reached that point yet. You know? <laughs> 
In fact, every year, Sham and I get to go for two and a half weeks to Florida, and I don't think I'll be back in three days. <laughs> but it does, as we continue thinking about it, you know, I ask myself, why, where does the joy come from? And my mind went to a psalm. In Psalm, chapter, psalm 16, verse 11, David writes, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Now, of course, whenever we read the word eternal, we're always, Christians always think of heaven. And that's certainly true, but it's not comprehensive. The Bible's concept of eternity is something that begins now, the moment you become a child of God. And therefore, even this truth, joy in the presence of Jesus, is not just for the future, but also for now. And it struck me why, coming out in that risky, dangerous, inner city place, this couple could find joy. You know why? Because where they were working with those high-risk teenagers, Jesus was present. And where Jesus is present, there's joy. Now, I don't think most of us, I certainly know I'm not cut out for that particular kind of work. But the fact of the matter is, every one of us has been shaped to play a very significant role in the kingdom of God. And I do know this much. If you're involved in building the kingdom in the way that God wants you to build the kingdom, and that's not the same for everyone, you will be periodically surprised by joy. Because Jesus will show up in places that you never expected. So that's really the first thing that I wanted to share with you. You are called to serve and build the kingdom not because you are promoting our agenda, but because it is your route to experiencing the joy that comes from working alongside with Jesus. Now, in this area of the Christian life, as in any other area of the Christian life, we have an enemy that opposes us all the time. And so it is not surprising that Satan will get busy derailing us from whatever it is that God wants to use to bring joy into our lives. And so that was the second thing that I felt I needed to communicate with you. Because one morning as I was reading in the scriptures, and thinking about this whole series of messages several months ago, I was in the section that deals with Jesus being tempted by Satan. And some of you who are familiar with the scriptures would know that right at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus faced three temptations from Satan. And as I looked at them, I saw how each one of them plays a role in distracting us from this call to serve in the way God intended us to serve. So I want to talk about that for a minute. The first temptation, of course, was to turn stones into bread. Jesus said to Satan, I mean, Jesus was hungry for 40 days he hadn't eaten. And so Satan says to him, why don't you change your stones into bread? (laughs) Now, bread represents legitimate need. The temptation, though, the temptation is sometimes to magnify legitimate physical needs to the point where they become distractions to serving God and accomplishing his purposes. When it comes to the issue of service, it is sometimes finds expression like, well, I've paid my dues. Now it's somebody else's turn to do the work. It's time for me to play. Time for me to unwind. Now I'll talk about legitimate breaks in a minute. But I'm talking about the kind of mentality that excuses itself, that magnifies that need beyond what is appropriate. And something that I had not realized before was driven home to me in this context when in our staff meeting recently, Pastor Wayne had us listen to a message that he had heard as part of a workshop somewhere else. And this man was talking about the difference between servants and volunteers. Now, we are used to thinking of lay people working in the church as volunteers. And you are. I mean, I get paid for it. You don't. So, in that sense, you are volunteers. There are whole conferences on church volunteerism and things like that. But as I was listening to him, I was struck by the fact that this purpose we're looking at, we've been shaped for service. It didn't say we've been shaped for volunteerism. And it didn't say in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus took upon himself the form of a volunteer. And you say, well, isn't that just semantic servant, volunteer? No, this message went on to point out a huge distinction between servants and volunteers. It's an issue of control. He said volunteers are in control of themselves. A volunteer volunteers when they want, where they want, how they want, and for as long as they want. 
It is not necessarily related to any objective needs or any exhortation. It may be, but it's not necessarily related to that. And they stop when they want. A servant, though, has no control. A servant takes orders from their master. And so the modern day version of this temptation could be Satan whispering in your ears, you're volunteers, you're not servants. The temptation to change stones into bread today is a temptation to look at ourselves as volunteers and not servants. Now, doesn't that, isn't there a legitimate need for break? Of course, bread does represent legitimate. Jesus did not say man shall not live by bread. He said man shall not live by bread alone. We do need break. That's why one day in seven we are told to stop our work and practice Sabbath. That's why in this church you give us as pastors sabbaticals. That's why it's quite appropriate for lay people who have been working steadily for a period of time to take a break. It is quite possible even in church to become workaholics. It is possible to develop a, a messiah complex and think we are indispensable. Recently I was talking with the CEO of a large parachurch Christian organization and he was finally getting to the point after 25 years or so where he was going to take a sabbatical. And having, having been blessed with a couple of them in my ministry here, I had a chance to talk to him about it. And I said, the first thing I want to tell you is it's too short. And I explained to him what happens in the early part of sabbaticals. He said, well, I guess I could lengthen it by one month, but that would mean I would have to miss some board meetings. And then very sheepishly, he said, I guess they can get along without me. Yeah, he's absolutely right. They can. We all need those breaks. But what was the purpose of Sabbath? The purpose of Sabbath and the purpose of breaks is to get re-energized to go back out into the playing field. And that's where this temptation becomes subtle and says, well, you don't need to go back. Let somebody else do the work. Jesus says, he countered this temptation by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. So you don't have to listen to me. But you do need to listen to your master, Jesus. So think of yourself not as volunteers to help the pastoral staff. Think of yourself as servants of Jesus and you better listen to what he has to say to you. And then you serve in the place and in the way in which he tells you to serve. Watch out for that first temptation. Now that first temptation failed. <laughs> and so Satan tries the second one. And he says to Jesus, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And says, worship me and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. This, this is a focus. This is a temptation to focus on what I call the glories of the visible kingdom. And therefore put our time and energies there. And that keeps us from serving. Jesus, of course, told his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added. And you don't run after those things. With our friends who were working in the inner city, it was exactly this shift that happened. Their primary focus was on the glories of the visible kingdom. And when that focus changed, their life began to change as well. And of course, the, and so there's that temptation. You know, Satan will point to glories of this world and say, you put your time and your energies there. The, the, the sad part of this is it doesn't bring us the kind of satisfaction, the joy that we think we have, or the peace. I learned an important lesson this week that relates to this issue. I shouldn't say this week, this month. In the week immediately following the news about the lawsuit, I was very anxious. I was in new territory. I used to wake up in the morning thinking about it. I used to wake up several times in the night thinking about it. I used to go to bed thinking about it. Anytime there was free space in my mind, that's where it would go. And I, was, I prayed often. I asked God for peace and I was not getting any peace at all. And then, of course, I got more agitated because I said, Lord, you asked me to teach our people. How am I going to teach them with any kind of confidence that God can give them peace in difficult times when I'm not experiencing it myself. I will have no integrity when I preach in the pulpit. I'm not going to be able to say those things anymore. If your word is not true, 
And of course, the word I was thinking of was, Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And I was trying to keep my mind stayed upon him and it wasn't working. And so now I was doubly anxious. Because if I, if I cannot with authority and integrity talk about God's word from this pulpit, I have nothing to say to you anymore. I have to find something else then to do. So I was really anxious. Well, anyway, the interesting thing is, uh, all that week I was on vacation. My brother and sister-in-law had come from Singapore to visit us. I'd taken that week off. And of course, we of course think that's when we get peace in our lives. Eh? When you're on vacation, when you're relaxing, we're not bothered about work and stuff like that. Well, actually, the next week I came back. And of course, when you always come back from vacation, everyone knows the work doesn't go away. There's lots of extra work to do. The lawsuit didn't go away. We had issues that we had to grapple with. But you know what? I found peace for the first time because I was up to here again doing all the things that God had made me to do. Studying, preaching, teaching, discipling, mentoring, planning, leading. And all of a sudden I discovered a dimension to that will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on the that I didn't know till then. It's not just some kind of uh, esoteric meditative keeping our mind upon him, which is also important. It also involves getting busy doing the thing he has called us to do. I found far more peace in the midst of a busy work doing what he has called me to do than I did when I was on vacation thinking about the problem and trying to get peace in my life. That's how the second temptation is important. So shift your focus from the glories of the visible kingdom and in faith begin to plunge yourself to advance the glories of the invisible kingdom. Well, that one failed too because Jesus said to him, his temptation in this case was answered by saying, it is written, You will worship the Lord God only. Him alone you will serve. Worship and service, by the way, are very closely linked. Both in Hebrew and in the Greek language. The same word is used to translate worship and service. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so worshiping Him by serving Him is part of the process of experiencing that peace and that rest that He gives. Well, as I said, this temptation failed and so Satan tried the third one. Throw yourself down from this temple and God will save you, son of God. After all, you are the son of God. Jump off from this temple. Do something spectacular. God's not going to let any harm come to you. Show them who you are and you will see how people will respond to you. That was the temptation. Now, if the first temptation was the lust of the flesh, the magnification of physical needs, if the second temptation was the lust of the eye, the glories of the visible kingdom, The third temptation is also a focus on myself, but it's not so much the physical needs as much as my importance. That's exactly what he was saying to Jesus. You're the son of God. You you can get away with all these kind of things. I paraphrase it this way. You deserve to be served, important Christian. My daughter-in-law and son were recently visiting another church in another city. And because my daughter-in-law is very interested in uh, children's ministry, she's involved in the ministry here, she uh, talked about that with the people there. And she said, I discovered some important things. She said, one of the things they do in that church is, uh, periodically they send out letters to parents of young children whose children are being ministered to in the children's ministry. And they uh, request them and encourage them to devote one month every year to serving in the very place where they are being served. She said what was interesting were the kind of reactions they got. They didn't get an objection to this from the seekers, the visitors. They didn't get an objection to this from newcomers, the ones that you would normally think they object. They got all the, any objections they got, they mostly came from the long-time regulars in the church. 
I don't know the reasons, but I kind of suspect that some of them had lapsed into this mentality that said, I've paid my dues. It's perfectly okay for me to be served and not expect to serve in return. So let me ask you a question. Some of you here are shaped by God to do something significant for the kingdom of God and you're not involved. Could it be because you have been distracted by one or more of these temptations? Is it an inappropriate magnification of the need for bread, whatever that might mean, that takes beyond legitimate Sabbath re-energizing rest to just indulgence? Could it be a focus on the glories of the visible kingdom that is taking away so much time and energy that there's neither inclination nor effort available for the kingdom of God? Could it be, perhaps, the kind of focus on yourself that says, well, that's not for people like me. They can do the work. If it is, you need to listen to what Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Worship the Lord God and serve Him only. And his response to the third one was, don't test God. So listen to him. So there's two things we've learned so far. Serve because it is your route to experiencing the joy that comes from working alongside with Jesus. And secondly, watch out for Satan's old new tricks to get you to stop serving. Now the fact that God promises us joy doesn't mean that service is going to be always easy. My discovery is that service always goes through a place that I call the slog phase. I would say 99.9%, almost I could dare to say 100% of the time when I'm preaching, I feel God's joy. There is nothing else I would rather be doing than that. But that's not the way I always feel from Tuesday to Friday. I go through slog phases. So, And you will go through slog phases through. So that's the third thing I want to share with you. What will sustain you in the slog phase of service? Sometimes our elders' board meetings go on to 11 or 11.30. 6.45 when we're having a nice hot meal, it's easy. 11 o'clock at night, it's slogging. What sustains you in the slog phase? Again, there's probably many, many things I could say, but there were a couple that came to my mind. The first one is vision. Get a clear grasp that links your service to something big, like God's glory. Let me give you an illustration. Nehemiah. Nehemiah in the Old Testament, those of you who may not know the story, was a man. He was second in command to the biggest kingdom on earth, the Persian, Medo-Persian kingdom. He worked in Susa, which is this kind of Washington, Bonn, and Ottawa, and London, and Paris all rolled into one. That's how important Susa was. And this man was the cupbearer to the king. Why would he leave that place to go 800 miles in a difficult journey to a run-down place called Jerusalem, where the city's walls were broken and gates were burned, and get his hands and his fingernails dirty, working with rubble, rebuilding a wall. Why would he do it? Because Nehemiah knew what the wall meant. You see, he had got news from his people that when the remnant, the first remnant that went back from exile and captivity, the, the walls were broken down, the gates were burnt, and they said, our people are in disgrace. And of course, when God's people were in disgrace, Nehemiah knew that God was in disgrace because God's people were closely tied up with their honor of their God because they claimed their God was unique. 
And so for Nehemiah, burnt walls and broken down gates meant my God's name is in dishonor. That's what made that work. Laborious, dirty, difficult, taxing, draining, far more glorious than back in Susa, right hand to the king. He could link his work, he could link the slog phase of his work to the glory of God. How does that work today? Let me give you an example. And I want to talk about children's ministries and this is my exhortation to you now. We've already seen the responsibility of the parents. What about ours? As I said to you, broken walls and burnt gates meant a vulnerable city. The most vulnerable people in our church are our children. They're also the most valuable. Jesus told you what he thinks of children. That's why I'm so glad that we have people like Lisa Masap who are committed to teaching, plan to protect over and over again. And I know that some of you are not involved in children's ministry because you don't want to go through plan to protect. You don't want to go through the embarrassment of police checks and all that kind of stuff. But what if, what if you were to just think about that effort in the light of how valuable children are and how vulnerable children are? Might it make a difference to how you see that work, the slog phase of your work? George Barna's book, Turning Children into Spiritual Champions, is making waves all over North America. Certainly is in our children's ministry and in my life. And one of the things he found out is that most children's spiritual and moral foundations are pretty well developed by the age of nine. Maybe till the age of 12. He also discovered that they don't change much after that as they grow into adulthood, inside or outside the church. If that's the case, I have a question for you. Who's doing the most important work right now? Me preaching to 400 adults, trying to change your mind when the data says they probably won't, unless the Holy Spirit does the work. Or those people whose names you probably don't even know, who are now pouring themselves into the lives of your sons and your daughters, shaping and molding them at a time when they are likely to have their moral and spiritual foundations established. That's a no-brainer, right? Could it be that if you thought about work in children's ministries that way, it might take, enable you to endure the slog phase? But whatever the work is that we're doing, this is one of the ways in which he sustains us. We've got to find a legitimate way. that It's got to be legitimate. Some hokey, pretended way of linking it to God's glory isn't going to sustain you. But if there's a solid, objectively, biblically based, integral way of linking what I'm doing in the kingdom of God to the glory of God, then it will sustain you during the difficult times. The second thing that will sustain you is what I've called the promise of a timely reward. Now, I have mentioned that we are periodically surprised by joy as well. But God also promises a timely reward, not just again, just in the future, even here. Let me tell you another story from the Bible. This man's name is Mordecai. It also happened in Persia. Now, Mordecai's uh, protege, who was his niece, I think, uh, Esther, had been taken into the harem of the king of Persia. And so Mordecai used to hang around the city gates just to keep an eye on her welfare. And one time he overheard two of the king's soldiers plotting to assassinate the king. Well, he got the news to the king through Esther, and so the king took care of these two people. But he didn't thank Mordecai. At least there's no record of that. Now imagine, imagine having saved the life of the Prime Minister of Canada and not even getting a thank you note from him. I mean, if there was anybody that could have been excused for getting bitter and resentful and saying, who cares about these people anyway? I'm just out of here. I'm just going to worry about myself. Let the king take care of himself. He could have, we could have excused him for thinking like that. Now, whether he did or not, we don't know. The story doesn't talk about that. But what the story does talk about is sometime later on, another one of the king's henchmen, a guy named Haman, 
took a hatred to Mordecai because Mordecai as a Jew would not bow down to him. He would only worship God. And so Haman went through a whole series of plots and set up a scheme by which he could get the king to give him permission to hang Mordecai. Now just before he was going to the king to get the permission, that night the story goes that the king of Persia couldn't sleep. And so as the kings are able to do, he said, oh, bring me the annals of the kings of Persia and read them for me. And as whoever it was was reading them, or he was reading them himself, he came across the story. And he said, what has been, what has been done for Mordecai? <laughs> Nothing. And so the king says, okay, get that guy Haman and honor this man Mordecai. You know, I have read this story, I don't know how many hundreds of times, but it struck me for the first time. Boy, Mordecai must have been pretty glad that he didn't get rewarded when he should have. Otherwise, he would have been a rich, dead man. That's not much good. And it struck me. It is possible for you and I, as servants of God, sometimes, to go through phases when no one is appreciating what we are doing. And again, it's the servants, the people in children's ministry. Many of us waltz in and out to pick up our kids without so much as a thank you or an encouragement note to the people who teach our kids. It's possible to do it. What will sustain us is the knowledge that there is a timely reward coming and when we get that reward, we'll be glad nobody said thank you earlier. Now, that is not an excuse for us to not encourage one another. That is not an excuse to not say thank you. That's not an excuse to not write encouragement note. But it does mean that you and I in our service are going through those slog phases when no one is saying thank you. There is a perspective that can sustain us. God has promised a timely reward for it. And you'll be glad that you wait. And by the way, it works today too. I mean, I always go to biblical stories first because those are the only ones that give me authority to say to you it works for you too. Human testimonies are good, but there's no guarantee they work for anybody else. What God says in his word applies to all of us. But it does work today too. Some of you know Buzz and Myrna Maxey, part of our international workers overseas. Buzz's father and mother, Ed and Shirley Maxey, were the first ones to go into Irian Jaya back in the 1950s when the Stone Age tribe had just been discovered. Well, 37 years into their ministry, the New Testament was translated into the Dani language. And so the day came for this great celebration. And these tribesmen, many of them walked miles through the jungles. And there was this great celebration and this feast going on. And Buzz said, I saw my mother standing over in a corner. Because all the focus was on his father. Like in many of those societies. And he said, I really felt sad for my mother. Because dad was getting all the attention. So he said, I walked over to my mother, put my arm around her and said, Mom, how are you feeling? And, and mentioned why. And she, he said, I'll never forget her reply. She said, Buzz, do you think I'd worked all these 37 years for that? And she said, he said, she said it without any rancor, without any bitterness. That's exactly how she felt. She was sustained in all those slog phases by the assurance of a timely reward from God. Human encouragement helps, but this is the one that we really count on. Anyway, as I said, there's many, many other things about service that we can talk about. But these are three that came to my mind this week. Serve because it's your route to experiencing the joy that comes from working alongside with Jesus. Watch out for Satan's old and new tricks to get you to stop serving. And be sustained in the hard times by linking your service to God's glory and by the certainty of a timely reward. Now, the sermon is not quite complete, but I'm not going to preach the rest of it. There's a young man in our congregation who led worship last night in whose life God worked from last Sunday's message to get him ready to plan this week's message that I think is the last word on service that you need to hear.
This is Dave Gadnush. He's the one Sundar just spoke about. It was a Sunday morning. I was on my way to the park that was just down the street to journal. I was frustrated by Christians around me, and they're not caring about finding their purpose in life. God, why aren't these people passionate about serving you? Why don't they give everything they have? The previous night, the sermon was about becoming like Christ by being humble. Hey God, obviously this frustration is to show me something ugly about myself. Whenever I ask God about someone else, I always get an answer that reflects issues in my own life and something that I have to change. So I walked to the park. This park was where I could rest. It has a lot of trees, and the best thing about it is this wonderful water fountain. In the middle of a busy city, here is this little park with a fountain whose water captivates those who look at it and drowns out the sound of a busy road. I got to the park and was shocked by what I saw. This fountain, the glory of the park, wasn't really glorious at all. In fact, it was very ugly. It barely pumped out any water. What is this? How can this fountain be so insensitive to my needs? If only it did its job, I could relax and journal. How could I experience God in this lack of beauty and all the noise that is coming from the street? The more I looked at this horrible thing, the more it made me angry. Lord, why did you bring me to this place? I wanted to hear from you, and now I'm frustrated and distracted. I can't listen to you here. Look closer. Why does it seem like the fountain is not working? It is doing exactly what it was made to do. It is pumping water. I looked into the water. Why is the fountain not majestic if it is doing its work? I looked closer. I started to notice where the problem was. Why are all those leaves clumped together at the bottom of the water? Well, you see, the water flows in and out of the pump system. This creates both a suction under the water and pressure that shoots the water up in the air, creating a glorious sight. The leaves are just caught in the suction and are blocking the water from going down the drain. Ah, so it's the city's fault that I'm frustrated. (laughs) They would just clean up the parks. People would be able to enjoy them. This fountain is useless with all those leaves in it. Why don't you unclog it? Me? No way. People think I'm crazy. But you said yourself this fountain is not being seen the way it is supposed to. So just unclog it and the water will flow again. I thought of every excuse possible not to do the job. I even said that the fountain should have been built in a way to clear its own leaves. I sat there in silence. I couldn't hear God's voice anymore because my thoughts were too loud, making excuses as to why I should not clean it myself. Okay, okay, I'll try. I took a stick and started poking at the drain. Nothing seemed to happen because the suction was so great. A few people who were walking by looked at me in a strange way and kept walking. You see, I look foolish. Did you see how those people looked at me? Of course they will look at you. Do you want them to look at the broken fountain? I guess, but I look like an idiot. I'll try a bigger stick. I tried and tried. I even tried to put my hand down there and came to the conclusion that it was too dirty for me. I almost walked away, but felt guilty that I hadn't finished the job. Lord, I can't do this. It will take me all day, and I won't have time for you. What am I supposed to do? Why don't you get a rake and rake up the leaves? That's what rakes are made for. Brilliant. That is a great idea. 
I walked home and grabbed the oldest rake I could find. It had been through a lot. It was taped up and had wires holding it together. You won't mind going in the water. As I walked down the street, I was kind of uncomfortable. I felt that people were looking at me, and they were thinking, what is that guy doing? Is he some crazy guy that has lost his mind walking down the street with a rake? Is he some criminal that's assigned to community work? I wonder what he's done. I can't do this. Look at how they're looking at me. Don't worry. Just focus on what I've told you to do. So I got to the fountain, and despite the few people looking at me, I plunged the rake into the water. When it came up, to my amazement, it had a whole pile of leaves. I dumped it on the ground, and back in the rake went. I was getting the hang of this. My efficiency was increasing, and I was enabling the water to flow freely through the pipes. The rake and I were a great team. I didn't mind it so much that people were watching. An old lady even smiled at me. The water slowly rose, and the harder I worked, the more I was empowered and motivated to get the job done. The ugliness of the fountain started to disappear, and before I knew it, this magnificent fountain that I had longed to see was bursting forth in praise, and the majesty of the water seemed to reach the sky. I put the rake down and sat on a bench. Thank you, Lord. This fountain is amazing. You know exactly how to do things. And I thank you for using me to display your glory. I watched as people come in and out of the park. People actually sat down and looked at the fountain. Kids would go up to it and want to touch it. This fountain is so beautiful when water flows through it. It actually calls people towards itself, and they look at it with great delight. I don't understand. Why did I have to do that? You asked me to show you why you were so frustrated with people around you. Just like the fountain, I made everyone to do a specific job. You see them and are frustrated because you think they are not doing what they were made to do. Did you ever think that maybe you were made to see what they are supposed to do, and instead of judging them, you are to help them? By helping them, you not only do what I made you to do, but you also help other people, like the rake, do what they were made to do. When you did what I told you to do, you ended up bringing glory to me. It is not the fountain that gets the glory in the end. It's me. I am the water that flows through people, and when others see this living water, they will be attracted to me. People were not even concerned that you were there when the fountain started running properly. You were so worried about what they thought, and yet they didn't really care what you were doing. Now go and be who I've made you to be. I made you able to see potential and future glory in the people around you. I want you to serve them by unblocking their pumps so that I can flow freely through them. Go and serve. What you saw in that last testimony was a man hearing God's word. He showed us that man shall not live by bread alone. Bread in this case was a preoccupation with how he was feeling. And he heard God speak. That's my blessing for you today. My blessing for you is that you will first of all become a people who will long to hear from God. It is such an incredible privilege to go into God's presence. And may God bless you with a heart that desires to hear him. And with a desire to walk into those fountains and those gardens in your life where his voice is clear. Secondly, I bless you with ears that are able to hear his voice clearly. And then with the trust and the faith that in that obedience to his voice, there is joy, there is freedom, there is rest, and there is peace. Go in Jesus' name.